Good morning. Have you ever um, dismissed something as insignificant only to find out later it was actually quite significant? You didn't at the time know it was a big deal, but you later would find that "Eh, it's actually a pretty big deal after all. I was reading about an example of this a few weeks ago. I don't know if the name Ignaz Semmelweis rings a bell. Probably not because I'm likely saying it wrong. But it showed up on a few of your history tests growing up. Uh, This is a doctor from 1846. He uh, was a medical doctor who worked at two maternity clinics. The maternity clinics were right next to each other. And one maternity clinic was staffed by doctors, and the other maternity clinic was staffed by midwives. And and Dr. Semmelweis worked at both of these clinics, and and yet he noticed something that was very um, upsetting, very perplexing. The difference between the two clinics is that in the doctor's clinic, maternity clinic, the women were dying of a, a fever that was commonly known as, as childbed fever. The women were dying at that, of that fever at five times the rate of the women who were giving birth in the midwife clinic. And he, he couldn't understand why this was. And it was a, a time in the medical profession where they were starting to uh, be more careful with collecting data. Autopsies were becoming more common. So he starts paying attention to what's the difference between these two maternity clinics? Why is there such a, a life and death difference? And he looked at um, what each clinic was doing different. He, he found that at the doctor's maternity clinic that the women would give birth on their back, but at the midwife maternity clinic, they would have women give birth on their side. And so he told the doctors, you should try it this way. Maybe that's the problem. Well, that didn't make any difference, as you might guess. Uh, didn't help at all. And so he, he continued to examine the evidence. And he, he noticed that at the doctor's clinic, again, where this, uh, this uh, death rate was five times higher, he noticed that the priest, after one of these women would die of this fever, a priest would walk through the clinic and ring a bell. Um, I, I don't know how that practice started, but that's what the priest would do. He'd walk through the clinic, ring a bell, indicating that another woman had died of this fever. And, and Dr. Samuelweiss thought, well, maybe these other women hear that. They just get really terrified. They develop this fever and they die. Maybe that's the problem. It's 1846. Cut him some slack. And so he, he had the priest stop ringing the bell. Well, as you might guess, that wasn't the problem either. So he, he starts looking at more differences between these two maternity clinics. And and here's what he notices, that the doctors, unlike the midwives, the doctors would do autopsies of the women who died of the fever. And then immediately upon doing these autopsies, they would go and deliver babies without washing their hands or their instruments. Now that seems obvious to us, but you have to understand in that time, uh, germs hadn't even been discovered yet. The whole idea of disinfecting, that, that hadn't even been discovered. Years later, uh, Louis Pasteur would discover germs and connect all these dots, but they hadn't even been discovered yet, so they didn't know. And he didn't even know why this would make any difference. He just knew it was different than at the maternity clinic staffed by the midwives. And so he, he told the doctors, look, let's, let's wash our hands and let's wash our instruments and we'll use chlorine because he thought maybe the smell had something to do with it. He didn't know chlorine was a disinfectant. He just thought it would get rid of the smell from the corpses. And so he said, let's wash our hands and instruments. And we'll, I don't know why that would make a difference. But let's see if it makes a difference. So, of course, they start washing their hands and instruments, and it it changes everything. 
It becomes this issue, this matter of life and death. And, and we know today that medical professionals washing their hands has saved more lives than any medical breakthrough in the past generation. It's a really big deal. And he just kind of stumbled onto it. It didn't seem like something significant. It seemed insignificant, but it had life and death implications. And I want to use that as a metaphor for what we're talking about today and in these upcoming weeks as we talk about the power of words. Because the, the power of words... I mean, we understand that they're important, but a matter of life and death might feel a little bit overstated. Are they really that significant? And yet here's what Proverbs 18.21 says. It says that the tongue has the power of life and death. Now that's not hyperbole meant to get our attention, right? This isn't hyperbolic language hoping to help you pay closer attention to the words you speak. This is, as we're going to discover, much more literal than we might possibly imagine that that the tongue has the power of life and death and, and yet for a lot of us we underestimate the impact our words can have and how our words can speak life or speak death into the world around us on average we speak around 16,000 words per day now granted some of you are skewing that number big time but on average 16,000 words per day that's a lot of words I think perhaps the sheer number of words that we speak, I think that makes it easy to underestimate the significance that each word can possibly have. In 16,000 words a day, that's like uh, writing a 60-page book every day with the words that you speak. And each of those words matter. So the Bible's going to warn us about not being careless with our words. It, it's easy, though, with that many words to underestimate. It's like scooping up a handful of sand from the beach there's a lot of grains of sand. You're not concerned if a few slip between your fingers. And we can become careless with our words. Last night, I had the, uh, I was preaching. I had this place in the sermon where I was talking about how, you know, we can have a tendency in life to um, not be motivated, to kind of lay around. And I used a phrase that I'd seen on social media um, to describe what we sometimes you know, feel like doing and the, the phrase that I used in the sermon last night which I later would discover has a different meaning that I understood the phrase was I said sometimes we just want to watch Netflix and chill <laughs> yeah so some of you know some of you don't some of you do so I used that phrase didn't think anything of it I thought it was just kind of popular with kids these days and um, after I get done preaching, I, I look at my phone and there's a number of texts from my younger, hipper friends, right? And they're, and they're like, I don't think that means what you think it means. I'm like, what do you mean? It doesn't mean what I think it means. Netflix and chill. This means I'm going to watch Netflix and relax. Nope, that's not what it means. You need to look it up. Kyle, go look up what Net Netflix and chill means. It turns out it doesn't mean what I thought it meant. It's, uh, it's a euphemism that uh, it's like uh, another way of like how the Bible talks about a man knowing a woman. It's, it's kind of, it's, it, and I didn't know that. I was just, I was just trying to be relevant, you know, using something I'd seen. And so immediately, you know, I get all these messages and, and people telling me, yeah, you, you, you said this, but it doesn't mean what you thought it meant. And, and, um, you know, my teenage girls were horrified and, and, uh, I officially felt old. And, and, and here's my point that, that even here I am preaching a sermon on words and I didn't, I didn't mean to use those words, uh, carelessly or incorrectly or, or in a crass way. But, you know, it's, 
my sermon's 5,000 words and you know, watch Netflix and just four words out of 5,000. Do we really have to focus on those four? I mean, and, and yet that's, that's the way words work. We, we are constantly speaking words and even a few can have the power of life and death. Now, some of you know this because you grew up in homes where a few words spoken to you had power of life or had power of death. And you can remember those words, just three or four words that maybe a parent, a teacher, a sibling, a friend, a coach said to you, and it either brought some life or brought some death into your world. Jesus warns us about the power of words in Matthew 12. We'll look at the context of this more next week. But for now, here's how the, the message paraphrases it. Jesus says to the religious leaders, let me tell you something. Every one of these careless words is going to come back to haunt you. There will be a time of reckoning. Words are powerful. Take them seriously. Words can be your salvation. Words can be your damnation. That's pretty strong, right? That Jesus, he's not saying that um, we're saved by our words, like through our works of our words, that we can somehow earn our way into heaven. But he, he's saying that our words are revealing who we are. It's revealing what's in our, our words are revealing what's in our hearts, that they're powerful, that we need to take them seriously. So I want to talk about that um, a little bit today, just how God has hardwired the power of words into the universe. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter one. So real easy, first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible. Some of you um, looked at this passage of scripture last week, but I, I, I want us to look at it again and pay attention to this this um, this detail of how the power of words are on full display. So Genesis 1, the Bible tells us the earth was formless, it was empty, or it was a void. And it says that darkness was over the surface of the deep. So there was, there was just nothing. There was nothing. And then verse 3, here's what we read. And God said. Maybe your translation says, and God spoke. So God speaks into the nothingness. He speaks into the darkness and he says, let there be light. And there was light. And so at the very beginning of time, God creates the universe. But how does he do it? What tool does he use? He, he uses words. He speaks the universe into existence. God says, and it is. And we see this throughout the creation account. God said, and it, and it, and it happened. He speaks it. He uses words and God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness and God called the light day. He called it. So here's what God does with words. He creates and he calls, he creates and he identifies. He called the light day and the darkness. He called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so God uses words to bring about life and light. God uses words to build up, to, to create. He speaks into darkness and he says, light and lights come on. And so we see from the beginning, the power of words, that words are the tool that God uses. Flip over a couple chapters, Genesis 3. And in this passage, uh, we see the, that words have the power of death. And so this is the passage of scripture where sin enters into the world. Um, God has created man and woman. He said that it's very good. Now Satan comes on the scene in the form of a serpent. And verse 1 tells us that the serpent was clever, more clever, in fact, than any wild animal God had made. And what did he do? He spoke. He spoke to the woman and he said, do I understand that God told you? So he speaks. And when he speaks, he attacks what God has said. 
Do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? And then he would go on to say, hey, God didn't really say that. And so what does the enemy use? The enemy uses words to bring death to where there was life and to bring darkness to where there is there was light. Now, here's what's interesting, of course, is that the serpent's words were not true, but that didn't keep his words from having power, right? Like the moment Eve, Adam and Eve, speak the words in their own hearts, the moment they believe those words, they give life to them. They empower them. So God speaks, the serpent speaks, and we just see from the beginning there's the power of life, there's the power of, of, of death. God speaks and he creates and he builds and he blesses. The enemy speaks and he tempts and he accuses, he deceives, he destroys. It's hardwired into the universe, the power of, of words. Flip over to the Gospel of John. So Genesis 1, first book of the Bible, first chapter of the Bible. Now you're going to go to the New Testament, and there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes called the synoptic Gospels because they all three give a similar uh, approach to telling us the story of Jesus. John is different. And John's going to introduce Jesus to us um, differently than the other Gospel writers, and when John introduces Jesus to us, he, he doesn't call him Jesus or the Messiah. He, he calls him the Word. And so here's what John says. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So John says, you remember Genesis 1? You just read that? In the beginning... The word, Jesus, was with God. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. So do you see what we, what we have? Is in Genesis 1, God speaks light into darkness. In John 1, Jesus is introduced as, as the word that comes bringing light into darkness. And, and the word for word here in the Greek is logos. It's just the expression or declaration of a thought. So this is who Jesus is. That Jesus is the word in the flesh. And so again, John is underlining for us the power of the word. That God's word in Jesus brings light into the darkness. And then throughout his ministry, of course, Jesus was constantly using words to speak the kingdom of heaven into this world. And that was the, the reason he came. Mark chapter 1, verse 38, he says to his disciples, we must go to the other towns as well, and I will preach, I will speak to them too. That's why I've come. Very first teaching of Jesus recorded for us um, is in Luke 4. And, and in Luke 4, Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to do what? To, to speak, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. So Jesus was with God from the beginning as light comes into the darkness in the physical world. Now in John 1, Jesus is the word and he's bringing light into the darkness and he speaks good news and he speaks freedom and he speaks healing and he speaks deliverance and, and it is so. There's power of life in his words. And you start reading through the Gospels through this lens, and you'll just begin to see the pattern that Jesus is constantly using words to speak life and healing and blessing. All kinds of examples of this. A couple come to mind. Um, when Jesus is in the boat with the disciples, the storm is raging. 
He stands up in the boat to calm the storm. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't give the storm one of these, right? He, he doesn't just tell the storm to calm down with his hands or some kind of motion. The Bible says that he, he rebuked it. He, he spoke at it. Didn't talk about it. He spoke to it. And he said, peace. And he spoke peace. And the moment he speaks peace, it's calm. This is the power of, of his word. It has always been this way. And it always will be. When he speaks peace, it's peace. John 11, when Jesus shows up at uh, the, the tomb of Lazarus a few days after Lazarus has died... And he raises Lazarus from the dead. He doesn't go in and like, you know, pop Lazarus on the forehead and Lazarus wakes up. That's not what happens. He, he, the Bible says he shouted. He said in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And in, 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 with those words, he speaks life into death. And, and Lazarus comes back from the dead. And so we see the power of words. Now, the, the point of these examples in Genesis 1 and John 1 in the Gospels, I'm not saying... That, you know, you can walk into a hurricane surrounded by 70 mile an hour winds and you can be like, peace, don't do that. No, that's not, I don't recommend that. Uh, or, you know, that you can walk through a cemetery and say, come on, come on out, come on out, come on. That, that's, that's not the idea here. The idea here is that words are the tool that God used. Words are the tool that Jesus used to bring life to where there is death, to bring light to where there is darkness. And we are made in the image of God. God has given us, as humans, the ability to speak. He's given us a tongue. And with that ability, he has given us the power to speak life and to speak death into the world around us by using our words. Our words are a much more powerful tool than most of us ever realize. Our words have, have power that most of us haven't imagined. They have the power of life and death. They can build up or tear down. They can oppress or set free. They can create or destroy. Um, they may not seem that significant, but they are a matter of life and death. Dr. Samuel Weiss uh, tried to get doctors to wash their hands. You know, it kind of became his mantra. But the challenge is he couldn't really explain how it worked. He just knew it worked. Right, because germs hadn't yet been discovered. He couldn't connect the dots. He couldn't scientifically say, this is why what I'm saying is right. He just knew it was right. And so he tried to get them to do it, but they rejected him. Uh, his, his colleagues uh, refused to do it. And, and he became more and more obsessed with this message. Wash your hands, wash your hands. And as you can imagine, right, he knows the difference it makes. He sees the suffering, the death, the infection around him, but they won't do it. It eventually drives him mad. He, he's committed to a, a mental institution at age 47. I, I was uh, reading about why the doctors rejected his message. Of course, part of it was that he couldn't connect all the dots yet, but, but there were a few other factors. One, for the doctors to accept his message of wash your hands, it was the self-indicting message. It's hard for your brain to go there because if they accept that to be true, what that means is that this suffering and death of all these mothers were and all these patients, it was on them. It was their fault. Now, they, they didn't do it on purpose, but, but they were the ones who spread the infection. And, and that's hard to accept the possibility of that. Our, our first instinct is to reject anything that would be self-indicting. 
And, and then the other reason they rejected this is because it seemed too simple. With all they were learning at the time and the education that they had gone through, the idea that just washing their hands and their instruments could save these lives, it just seemed, it seemed too simple. And as I was preparing this message, I, I, I know that that's going to be true for some of us as we talk these next few weeks about the power of words. That if we're really going to take this seriously, it's going to mean indicting ourselves. Because without exception, we have used words carelessly. We have brought uh, hurt and we have brought pain in, in, in words that we have spoken to other people. And it's just much easier for us not to think about it. It's much, our, our mind's natural response to that kind of idea and that, that our words have had somehow had the power of life or death in someone else's life is to, you know, instinctually we want to run away from it because to accept it is to indict ourselves, which just we, you know, naturally are not prone to do. And I think it's also true that it seems simple. Really changing the way I speak out, really bring life to my marriage, bring life to my work, bring life to my spirit. Can it, does it really have that kind of impact and, and make that kind of change? And so Dr. Samuel Weiss's message to the other doctors was always just try it. Just, just try it. And put it to the test. I can't ex- exactly explain why this is true, but I know it's true, so just try it and see what happens. And, and, and that's what I would like us to do as a church in this next week and throughout the month. We'll have some challenges, but to just, to just try it. And so I have a few things I'd like to ask you to try this week as uh, we talk about the power of life and death. First is wake up and speak God's word every morning. Just for four or five minutes, wake up and speak God's word and just see what happens. I know some of you are skeptical. You don't think there's much to this. It feels perhaps to you like self-empowerment or self-reinforcement. That's not what this is. I'm not saying speak your words. I'm saying speak God's word over your life. Speak God's life and light over your life and your relationships, over your attitudes, over your decisions. Isaiah 55, we'll look at this in a couple of weeks, but in Isaiah 55, the God says that his words are, are like, his word is like seeds that get planted and bear fruit. And that they always bear fruit. His words always bear fruit. They never return void. They never come back empty. Whenever you plant the seed of God's word, it's going to bear fruit. And, and so that's what we want to do. We just want to start planting some seeds. And for some of you, you're going to plant some of the seeds in God's word. And the fruit's not going to come right away. And you're, you're going to feel like it's not really making any kind of difference or impact. I'm saying just try it. Just, just try this for a little while. Speak God's word into your life. Plant some of these seeds. See what happens. We looked at the first part of Proverbs 18, verse 21. The tongue has the power of life and death. The second part says, and those who love it will eat its fruit. You, you ever hear the phrase, um, you know, you're going to have to eat your words? Right? That, that's, that's this idea. That your words are seeds that get planted. Those seeds bear fruit. And whatever seeds you've planted with those words will determine what fruit you have to eat. You have to eat the fruit of your words. They have life and death. You plant words of life, you plant those seeds, you have the fruit of life. You plant death, it's poison. And, and so um, I want to give you some examples of, of how to do this, how to speak God's word over your life. I've wrote, uh, I'll put some up here. You won't have time to write these down. I'll, I'll make sure they get put up on our website. But some examples of how we do this is, is you, you, you wake up in the morning and you say something like this. Today I live as a child of God. 
And the evil one cannot touch me. It's not wishful thinking. That's true. It's what God has said. And God's word is supernatural. And it trumps whatever the serpent would say. It trumps whatever you've been telling yourself. And so you say, this is what's really true. I am a child of God. The evil one cannot touch me. The, the enemy will, will try to start your day off telling you that your sins uh, have condemned you, that there's no coming back, that you're a prisoner of your past. And so for some of you, you need to start your day off and, and you need to just speak this truth over your life. I am not condemned by my sin today. I have been set free by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm not condemned. I'm not a prisoner. I'm not going to live like it today. The truth of God's word is that I'm set free, so I'm going to live like a free man. And the enemy will try to, to wake you up and speak words of hurt. The enemy wants you to have a hard heart and bitterness towards others, and so he'll remind you of pain that was caused to you. And hopes that you will bring that pain into this next day. And so for some of you, you, you have to tell yourself this. I tell myself this sometimes. I have plenty of grace to give today. Because I have received God's grace. Because I've received God's grace, I've got grace. You need some grace, i got grace to give you. And sometimes when I'm driving to work, I'll, I'll say this. I'm a man full of grace. If you need it, I got it. Sometimes when I'm driving to from work to home, I'll tell myself this. I, I have so much grace, I don't know what to do with it. That's how much grace I have. I've got so much grace from God, I have it in abundance to give to anyone who needs it today. Because there's something within me that is wanting to speak a different word. Oftentimes, the words I'm telling myself is, I don't got anything left. I, I'm empty, I feel frustrated, I, um, I, I, I don't have much patience left. That's not true. The truth is, I am a child of God who has been filled with the grace of God, and I've got it to give. And so you, you speak this truth into your life. It's not wishful thinking. It's not self-empowerment. It is you speaking God's truth into, into the darkness. Um, the enemy might try to tell you that you don't have a purpose, that you're wasting your life at your job or your school. You don't have anything special to offer and so you tell yourself at the beginning of the day i'm going to make a difference today because i know that today god has already pre prepared in advance for me the work he has for me according to ephesians 2 uh, i'm going to claim that on my way into to work or, I, or when you're going to school the school gets ready to start back up as you say i know that today god's got a plan for me he's already prepared it for me i know that that's true the enemy will constantly be putting words in front of you that will cause you to feel stressed and worried about what's happening in the world or what might happen. It wants you to live in fear. But we, we speak God's truth and we say, today I'm not anxious, I'm not worried, I'm not weighed down. That is not who I am. I have cast my burdens on the Lord and he cares for me, First Peter 5, 7. We say from 2 Timothy 1, 7, today I'm not afraid, I'm not weak, I don't have the spirit of fear. I have a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. I said that to myself as I walked out on stage here a few minutes ago. I'm not afraid. I'm, I'm not afraid. I have the spirit of God's power in me. That's, that's who I am because of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. We speak this truth over our lives. Today I'm not going to be discouraged or defeated. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I will, give joy, I will be joyful in all circumstances. And you just start to speak this truth over your life. And, and I know some of you think, oh, that's... 
you know, that's Tony Robbins stuff. No, it's not. This, this isn't, this isn't just like this self-empowerment. You know, we, we shy away from this because it's been abused and because it's, it's been used as a form of humanism where, you know, we just say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough. And we, that, that's not what this is. This is us speaking God's truth over our lives. That's different. That's different. Second challenge for you is, uh, do a word inventory before going to bed. It's a lot of fun. It's a great way to end your day. Uh, you know, just take a few minutes, though, to, to think about it. The Bible says we're to give an account of our words. So we want to pay attention to where our words are going. Words that have come in, words that are going out. And you just ask, well, who did I encourage today? Who did I build up today? How did I use my words to speak life today? How did someone else speak life into me today? And you just go through some conversations at work or at school or on social media and you just, you just do a little bit of a word inventory to see where those words are going. And that will help us in these next weeks as we're challenged from God's word in this area of our lives. Um, in honor of Dr. Samuel Weiss's legacy to medicine, um, he never got to see any of this, of course, or to understand. But there are several medical schools that have been named after him, hospitals named after him, women's clinics named after him, museums that honor him, that bear his name. What was interesting to me, though, is um, of a term that is now taught to doctors in medical schools uh, and in the science field in general, and the, the term is the Semmelweis reflex. And, and here's how it's defined. The Semmelweis reflex is the knee-jerk reflex to reject new evidence without investigation and experiment because it goes against what has been accepted or practiced. Just this, just this reflex within us that because, because this isn't practiced, because this has not been popularly accepted, I'm, I, I'm not even going to give space for it. I, I'm not even going to experiment with it. But look, if there's evidence for it, if there's evidence for it, you've got to try it. If there's evidence for it, you've got to investigate it. You, just, you have to at least see, even if it hasn't, been practiced, even if you've never been open to it before. And, and for some of you, I know that there's this knee-jerk reflex to reject what I'm talking about today. You, you, you don't think it'll make that much of a difference. Maybe you grew up in an environment at home where words were used carelessly, they were spoken freely, and that's how you talk now, and you just say, oh, that's the way I'm wired, that's the home I grew up in. And, and I'm telling you, what if you just tried this? What if you just experimented with this for a month? What if you just investigated this for a month just to see if it would make any difference? To see if maybe some of those seeds would bear some fruit that would bring life. And so that's the, the challenge for us as a church family. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your trust in Jesus, that, that you would begin to intentionally speak God's word over your life, into your life, that you would do a close inventory of your words and ask, am I, am I speaking life or am I speaking death into the world around me? Let's pray. Uh, God, I thank you that your word is life, and I pray that we would uh, discover that. I know a lot of us grew, grew up being told to read our Bibles, and, and, um, and we didn't really understand the tool that we had. We didn't really understand the power that we were wielding. And, and so, God, would you help us to, to maybe be open to this in a new way, to, to discover the power of your word in our lives and to know that, that you, God, want us to be 
those who speak your word into the darkness and into the, the world around us. So Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for being the word that brought light and life into the darkness. And I pray that you would fill us with your words until they spill out and they uh, go forth and, and um, s- surround us and bring light into this dark world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.